I want to pray before we jump in, um, and, and then we will get to work on uh, what I kind of feel like God has placed in my heart to share. So, Jesus, thank you for uh, assembling us here. God, none of us are immune from the challenges and hardships that we see surrounding our world, uh, our country. And we ask you, Father, right now for wisdom to know how to navigate this in a, in a way that brings forth life and sustainability and goodness and truth and beauty. God, protect us from descending into ugliness, being malformed by lies. We need your help, Holy Spirit, to just do what only you alone can do. So we just collectively and individually, Lord, say that we just submit ourselves to you as our king, the one who gave himself for us, the one who loves us, the one who empowers us, the one who has a mission for us, the one who has given us everything that we need to live life and a life of beauty and goodness and truth. And so we pray these things even right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So... I don't know if you guys follow me on social media or are part of Calvary Slow's social media stuff. Um, this past couple of days, I've um, I had been posting a few things, just recognizing I wanted to kind of shift what I was going to be talking about or teaching on. Uh, we've been in a series in First Peter. Uh, yesterday morning, I woke up and I was like, I gotta, I gotta teach on this topic that's going on right now in our culture. Um, obviously, uh, as it pertains to Roe v. Wade, um, what I had been thinking about over the past several years, actually, I kind of had this, like, surge, resurgence of, like, emotion and stress and anxiety and just, like, holy cow, what is happening in our world again, again. It made me realize, like, we have been in the midst of several seismic movements over the past several years from uh, a medical seismic shift to racial seismic shifts to political seismic shifts to this whole (coughs) reversal of Roe v. Wade. And one of the things I wanted to do is I want to try to speak into this as, as best as I can. Um, I'm not an expert. Um, I only had a small amount of hours yesterday to basically try to figure out what I'm going to talk about today. So um, it's not going to be exhaustive. Um, I, if I had way more time to spend thinking about this, I would. Uh, this past week has also been a little bit stressful, and I'll, I'll, I'll take two seconds to just kind of briefly unpack that. If anything, it will give you the compassion for me, um, and I need it. Um, uh, my wife's sister, uh, she used to go to church here, was on staff here. Her name was Michelle. Um, she married a guy named Kevin. Kevin used to be up in the booth up there, tech support and doing all the stuff here. He went to Cal Poly, graduated from Cal Poly. Uh, he actually got struck by lightning on Wednesday morning. It was gnarly. So if you guys uh, read a news report from Ridgecrest, that was, that was him. That was my brother-in-law. And so my wife's been down there. It's been kind of a crazy... Uh, roller coaster ride, just trying to figure out is he, is he, he going to be okay? And she's got two young kids. The oldest, I think, is like three. I don't. I, I, I'm, I'm a dude. I can't ever keep track of how old kids are. Um, all I know, she's cute. She's about that high. Um, she's got really curly hair. She's got a cute, squeaky voice. But um, it turns out he's actually doing good. Um, doctor just went into him today. I just called Sherry on the way here, and she said the doctor went into him this morning and says, "Hey, you ready to go home?" So. Uh, we're, we're trying to figure out. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, 
And I'm, I'm ready to have my wife home. She's been gone for two weeks because just before that, she was off visiting her mom who just had gnarly knee replacement surgery. So again, this is not woe is me, sorry, but have compassion on me. That's all I want. And, and I'm nursing it for, there's, my wife's not here to nurse compassion upon me. So I'm just, I'm defaulting to you guys. So thanks. Anyways, um, what I want to do right now is I want to transition now. And I want to look a little bit into this whole thing now. Because, um, like I said, there's a lot more that could be spoken on this topic than um, I have been given time to be able to share. Um, my, my hope would be able to at least kind of cast a vision of how we could and should maybe navigate some of these uh, circumstances that we find ourselves in the midst of, these seismic shifts that we find. Um, that being said, I'm not going to be able to give you like a point-by-point point navigational GPS system or map saying, go to this point, now move to that point, now move to this point. I, I can't do that um, just in the time. But what I can do is I can point out and say, hey, see that mountain over there? Um, that's where we want to go. Not that mountain, not that mountain. That one is Mount Doom. Don't go there. That mountain is the one that we want to go to. So I can try to at least cast a vision for how I think Jesus invites us to consider these things and to live even in the midst of a lot of chaotic circumstances that we find ourselves in the midst of. One last thing I want to say before I jump into this, just kind of a word of caution, because I know um, social media has been a buzz with all forms of anywhere from like absolute, utter rage, all the way to gloating and glee and excitement, like, ah, it's amazing. And and I I just want to caution us as a community on both extremes, um, but especially the extreme of just simply leaning or defaulting to the fact that just because a law has been reversed or changed or set into a different direction, that does not change hearts. It does not change hearts. Um, if anything, it could actually make things even more complicated. So I think it's important just to kind of pause, to consider, to think about that um, in terms of considering the whole human situation that we find ourselves in the midst of trying to navigate and trying to make sense of and how to live our lives in the midst of. Um, I want to ask a question. Why even teach on this? Like, why even teach about this? Why should we even devote? Oh, if you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some that would love to get your Bible. Um, and uh, why even kind of delve into a teaching on this? And I have some thoughts. I think a little scripture that I want to read, um, and it's out of the book of Micah. So maybe you guys are probably familiar with it. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, Micah says this. God is actually in dialogue with the prophet. Um, do we have the slide? Um, hopefully we have the slide. There we go. Um, uh, God is in dialogue with the prophet Micah and asking him a series of questions. And one of the questions that Micah uh, gets asked by God, he's like, do you, do you think I like the sacrifices you bring? You know, Micah's kind of like representing the people of Israel and the thought of like, hey, we bring our sacrifices and we bring our worship and we bring our, you know, all these things to you. And God's like, you, do you really think I like that? I don't, God's whole point is like, I don't, I don't really care about your worship. I don't care about how good you are or how much you've memorized about the Bible. I don't really care about all of these aspects. But God does say there are things that I do care about. So it's important to know that there are some things that God doesn't really care about. Make sure that things that you care about in life are things that God cares about. And make sure that you are not holding on to and embracing certain things. You're like, ah, I think God's all about, you know, memorizing the end times charts and figuring out all of his details and data and data points. And, and maybe, maybe God looks at it as like, I don't, I don't really care about that. You're spending a lot of energy and exhaustion on things that I just, I just don't care about. But what does God care about? Here's what he actually tells the prophet. Listen carefully. He says, uh, God then says, uh, the Lord has told you, O man, what is good 
Um, and I actually put down some of the actual Hebrew words that are right there in case, in case you're a Hebrew reader and writer. Right? But I think, I think they're helpful because I'm kind of geeky and nerdy about that type of stuff. But the word good literally is the word tov. Um, and it gets used a lot in the Old Testament. It's the idea of like goodness, genuine goodness. And I think we'd all agree, you and I, we want a society that is for the good of all human beings, for good. God, God does too, apparently. Um, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? So God is going to say, these are the things I, I require of you. I want you to live into and to embody uh, as a part of what it means to be human or as what it means to live under this banner of genuine goodness. He goes on to say, do justice. Uh, if you're familiar with the word mishpat, um, it's the common word that gets used hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament of justice. And then he says, I love kindness. And the word kindness there is the word chesed. Um, and it's, it's not just simply kindness. In fact, that's not even the best translation. You can, you can translate this as uh, deep, uh, devoted love or commitment towards something. It's, it's what the word kindness really means here, chesed. And to walk humbly with God. These three things. God says, love uh, love kindness, do justice, and to walk humbly with God. Um, it's very common, especially in some circles of Christianity, to basically eliminate or turn a blind eye against the first two, justice and uh, kindness, and focus on walk humbly with God. So there's a lot of like emphasis upon, ah, the most important thing in the Christian life is to make sure you have good devotions with God, and you journal, and you read the Bible, and you listen to the Christian music, and you do all these specific things that help you to walk humbly with God. And that's important. Don't, don't, Misunderstand what I'm saying. It's important, but not to the elimination of the former two. And then there's others that will be like, no, the most important thing is about doing justly. That's all that God really cares about, to the elimination of the others. And so you get the idea that this is a three-legged stool that God's saying, these three things I, I want you to do. And as you walk into these, they, they live into a life of, of goodness, goodness, tov. So, again, back to the question, why a teaching in this? So, number one, I think it has to do with the fact that justice, love, and you can also add walking humbly with God, actually matter to God. These are things that God says, I care about these things. I want these things to be representative in the lives and the lifestyles of my people. And at the same time, as we live into these things, they will shape us into a certain quality or certain type of people. The second thing is that either these, with regard to justice and kindness and or walking humbly with God— Either these will shape us, or we will give attention to that which is most noisily communicated in our culture, which is emotion, rage, or hatred, or pride. Social media, which, again, as I was thinking about this, what, what is social media? Like, I, I don't know. I heard someone describe it this way. Like, like, Twitter is basically this collective of just ignorance. It really is. It's just a collective of ignorance. Now, again, I'm not in any way making a claim about anybody else other than myself. I'm not that smart. I'm, and there's been many times I have said things on social media that at some point later down the line, I'm like, ah, I shouldn't have said that. I take it down, and I have to look back, and I'm like, I, I shouldn't have said that because it was dumb. It was ignorant. Sometimes I'm dumb in what I communicate. It's just, I just need to take it down because it's not representative of truth that is God. Now think about get a collective of that, hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands upon thousands of tweets and retweets. And, and that is the world that you're like, I'm going to go get information from social media, and that's going to shape me. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a dumb collaborative, dumb collective. It's, just, it's ignorance. 
is just spewing over and over and over again from that. And if, if that becomes what shapes us, then we become shaped by that. And again, I'm, I'm not making any judgment claims on anybody as a human being. I'm just, I'm owning it myself saying, I have contributed to that milieu of ignorance as well as all of us. And if that becomes what we turn to, then we are being shaped in ways that I, I think we're not prepared for that are ultimately leading to health and goodness. Um, and then lastly, political polarization. Now again, we can find plenty of information in our world today that will affirm our biases. It calls, it's called confirmation bias. It's one of the reasons why some of us will lean one direction right, others of us will lean heavily left, and we will find voices in fact, this is the whole idea of social networking, social marketing. They know how you lean, and so therefore they kind of keep you fed information to keep you in that system so that you never get off your cell phone. So you are eternally distracted, never to be able to leave it because you keep reading a new tweet and it just causes rage, and rage kind of keeps you going back. It's like this drip line of rage, like more rage. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And it's just over and over and over again. Before you know it, you get an entire humanity that are just angry. We become part of the problem is what's happening. So people, I think at the end of the day, all of us have this tendency where we can be so deeply hurting that the radical narratives that are out there are, are far more easy for us to swallow and to imitate than to dissect and analyze truth and important things that need to be dissected and analyzed. Uh, to put it another way, rage is far easier to embody than compassion. Would you agree with that? It's far easier to just be angry with somebody. I want to punch them in the throat. Some of you are like, whoa, it's got some issues. I do have some issues. I'm not denying that. Then it is to actually walk up to someone and be like, tell me about your life. I want to hear what's going on inside your world. If there's anything I can do to help, if you need a meal, if you need companionship, you need someone to tell your story, you need a journey, journeyman to come alongside, that requires time, that requires patience, that requires compassion. Three things that most of us don't have. So we just resort to rage or ignorance. It's like, I don't want rage, I don't want compassion, so I'll just like not look at what's happening in our world, just kind of like merrily going with life. Some of us might fit that category as well. But here's the point that I want to make, and because I'm spending much, way too much time on this, is I want to just kind of move now into basically three, what I'm going to describe as three plausibility statements. And you got to follow with me on this. And I'm constantly being told I'm putting too much content on my slides. So I apologize right now for the amount of content that are on these slides. So if you want to take a photo, hopefully it'll last longer. But I, I feel like I had to do this, all right? Uh, because I had to, and I, it took me a long time to try to get these sentences right. And if they're not grammatically correct and they're misspellings, that's, I, it's all on me. I own that. I'm not good at that type of stuff either. But I want to just kind of throw out these three plausibility statements. And I'll kind of, from this, build into uh, the main corpus of what I want to talk about here today. So number one, just got to follow along. Number one, and it's really, really important, and I'm, and I'm basically what I'm doing through these three plausibility statements, I'm jumping straight into the very center of the, the cultural tension, right? So I'm just, I'm just telling you up front, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping straight into the midst of it, okay? I'm, I'm either very bold and courageous or I'm totally stupid. Maybe a little bit of both. But the point that matters, I, I, I don't want to 
beat around the bush. I want to just jump right to the very heart of this and try to unpack some of this as best as I can. So with that being said, let's jump in. Number one, if what is inside a pregnant woman is a human, let's put in a parentheses, an image bearer of God, because that's what a human is. A human is an image bearer of God. More on that in just a moment. Then justice and kindness would require protecting this vulnerable unborn child. So again, I'm going to repeat it again, just no stops. If what is inside a pregnant woman is a human, an image bearer of God, then justice and kindness would require protecting this vulnerable unborn child. Second plausibility statement, if what is inside a pregnant woman is not a human, is an image bearer of God, then justice and kindness would require protecting this vulnerable woman's rights, or this woman, to do as she chooses with her body. Even if that includes terminating the pregnancy. Because again, in this plausibility idea, it's, it's just a collaboration of cells. Or some have even described it. It's nothing more than a parasite living off a host of another human being. And if that's all it is, if that's all that it is, then a woman could be free to make the choice. It would be supported that this should be her right. I'm going to stick to reading what I'm having here. Thirdly, and I want to try to bring some cohesion to all this, if what is inside a pregnant woman is an image bearer of God, then it's careful to listen, then what you have are two humans. Two humans in a vulnerable state, in need of justice, kindness, and help. I want to make a couple real quick statements. There's a lot of stuff that I cannot by way of time, address. Um, this gets really, really dicey in certain contexts with regard to the questions of like, what about incest? What about rape? How do you deal with these traumatic circumstances that have been forced upon a woman, not by her choice, not by her consent? Horrible, horrible cultural circumstances that, that need to be carefully thought through through a therapist, through a trauma therapist, through a doctor, through all, maybe, maybe a, a, a spiritual advisor, a mentor, somebody. Traumatic circumstances that cannot be simply ignored. But at the same time, let's, let's be honest, those account for a very small, very, very small minority based upon all of the best statistics. Very small minority. But nonetheless, extremely important. I, I won't be able to have time to, to go to this. I'm mainly talking about just in general. Woman gets pregnant, not knowing what to do, deep trauma, challenge, hardship, uh, life-altering things. Maybe, again, in our culture where men have this, this unbelievable lack of responsibility, feels the freedom to just kind of ditch out um, and not take responsibility. I, I have deep compassion for a woman that's been in a circumstance like that. I've been through circumstances like that. We as a church have been through circumstances like that with alongside women that have gone through traumatic circumstances and unwanted pregnancies or unplanned uh, pregnancies like this in many, 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 many times. Um, the other thing I want to be really clear on is this is not at all, and I think it's really important just to underscore this, there is no space for guilt and shame to be leveled upon people. And for far too long, the church... Christians have affixed some form of guilt and shame to this so that when people find themselves in crisis moments through a pregnancy, the last place they want to go to is the church. They don't feel safe. And that's horrible. Because the church should be a place where justice and loving kindness and those who walk humbly with God live. 
And if that's not been the experience, then at some point the church, Christians have to step back and say, man, how, have we contributed to that? Have we played to that? If so, how do we repent from that? How do we turn from that? How do we do better? Because at the end of the day, that is the DNA that ought to define followers of Jesus. So with that being said, I want to jump in to really just kind of think about this because I believe, as I mentioned earlier, that this really is the crux, that this is the crux of all of the conflict, the stereotyping, the name-calling, the tribalist, tribalistic uh, tendencies and classifications. So on the one hand, you might have pro-lifers looking at the other side saying they're baby killers. That's all they are, baby killers, reducing. Reductionism is not helpful. Uh, it's, in a philosophical term, it's called creating a straw man, just simply reducing everyone to a particular terminology that you can now dismiss. But everybody's guilty of that, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, left and right, Constantly, constantly, over and over again, reducing the other person to something that they can then just simply dismiss and shove off into some corner and feel justified and pat themselves on the back because they have done the actions of self-righteous activity. So on the other hand, you have pro-choicers that will accuse the other side of saying, all you want to do is control me and steal my personal rights. But like I said, I want to go back to the third plausibility statement, which is this, if what is inside a pregnant woman is indeed an image bearer of God, then you have two human beings in a vulnerable state that are in deep need of justice, kindness, both an unborn child and a woman who finds herself in a deeply vulnerable moment of her life. So with that being said, I'm going to jump in and just kind of walk through, I think just kind of a biblical perspective. It's going to just kind of 30,000 feet above uh, sea level um, observation of uh, these important aspects. So number one, I'll just take a look at this and we'll, I'll tell you what they are up front and then we'll go through each one of them one by one. Number one, all humans bear the image of God. That's the first thing we'll look at. Secondly, we'll take a look at all pregnant women bear the image of God and are valuable. Thirdly, all unborn children bear the image of God and are valuable. So I want to go through these one by one. Number one, all humans bear the image of God and are valuable. So I want to also just throw this out by way of just, you know, something for you to chew on and think about. Uh, at the very end of the service here, as soon as we're, like, done with everything, uh, I want to create some space if any of you guys have questions. I, again, I, I, these are things that I don't, as a church, as a pastor, I don't, I don't want to, like, dodge. I want to be able to do as best as we can to address these things. They may be a little bit uncomfortable. They might be difficult for you to navigate. You might have been involved in a church where that's, that's not been the protocol of dealing with these things. You just have the pastor as a talking head. He just says a couple demands and statements and then um, off-color jokes, and then that's it. It says, amen, everybody go have a great day. I, I, I want to create as much space as I can to be able to at least have dialogue. If you have questions, I want to be able to create some space to be able to have some questions. So immediately following afterwards, I'll give you some instruction towards the end. But if, if, if until then, you have questions, go ahead, just write them down, and we'll save them for a little bit later, and we'll unpack them as we do so at the very end of all this. So number one, all humans bear the image of God, Imago Dei, and are valuable. So Genesis chapter 1, we get this from the very opening pages of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, says, God then said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. There's a lot of other stuff said in between, the dot, 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 but you get the idea. This is kind of big, big, big picture thing. God created human beings in his likeness. So if you want to think about, about this in three summarized statements, number one, humans are the final and the greatest act of God's creation. Humans are the final and greatest act of God's creation. There's all sorts of passages throughout scripture that would indicate this. 
They're greater than, you know, platypuses and elephants and whales and, you know, beetles. Human beings, there's something unique about you that's greater than, better than, different than all of the breathing animals on planet Earth. How? Why? You bear the image of God. There's something about you. God put a stamp of authenticity, of reality, of beauty, of goodness, of truth upon you that is to be reflective of him. If you want to think of it this way, human beings possess dignity. That's why it's, a, that's why it's, it's, it's in some contexts, it's, obviously it's a crime to commit murder. But it's even more than that. The book of John will describe, it's, it's even worse than that because it's, it's crushing the image of God in another human being. So hating another human being is not just hating another human being that you can simply reduce to a category. You're looking at another human being that bears the, the beauty of God and saying, I hate that person, but it follows upstream to say, really, I hate God. I mean, think about that. That's like nobody here came to church and was like, I hate God and I want to perpetuate that throughout my life. But John's going to basically rip off the mask of that and say, look, if we claim to love God and yet we hate our brother who God created, then he basically is just calling us out saying, you're walking in a lie. Like, it's, that's not Christianity. This is the whole point. And the, I, the idea that I want to make with regard to this is that humans, first of all, are the final and greatest act of God. Therefore, they possess dignity. Secondly, humans alone bear the unique title, image of God. There's no other creature, no other being, not even angels, bear this title that is attributed to human beings throughout the Bible as those that possess the image of God. Angels are pretty awesome. It'd be amazing to see one one day. One day I'm sure I will. But the point of the matter is, they, even they, as amazing as they are, do not bear the image of God. Human beings do. And then thirdly, humans alone have been given dominion over all the earth. So three things. Number one, human beings possess dignity because they're the chiefest and the finest of God's final uh, act of God's creative goodness. Uh, They possess value because they have the image of God in them. And then thirdly, they possess potential because God has called them into something, doing something vast and great and good and beautiful uh, on this planet. So there's three things. And so therefore, I think it's important as we kind of move on to the very next one, that this whole idea that all lives from womb to tomb matter. Again, I hate cliches, but that's kind of a cliche that's out there, womb to tomb. But the big idea is that all lives, all human beings that bear God's image should be part of the agenda of loving and caring and showing dignity, value, and respect because of this first and foremost most important principle. Secondly, I want to jump on into all pregnant women bear the image of God and are therefore valuable. Again, this is the important aspect that I think just needs to be affirmed that human beings as women who are pregnant are valuable to God. And even if it's in a moment of a crisis pregnancy. So I think it's important that much really within the pro-choice movement oftentimes gets classified as they're just bloodthirsty hateful human beings. I don't think that's always necessarily the case, and I don't think that's really healthy in terms of creating any form of dialogue, which, by the way, no one has ever changed anybody else's mind on on, on Twitter and Facebook and social media, like, ever, ever. Have you ever had your mind and your theological and theoretical ideas shaped on social media? Probably not. Maybe one or two of you, like, yeah, I did, actually. But if you trace that up to you, kind of find out why. It's because it was, it was meaningful dialogue. You were able to ask questions. You were able to communicate. But the point that I would make is this. 
is that being able to recognize that I, I think in the heart of this, when the church, when Christians who are tasked with this responsibility of showing dignity, value, and respect don't show dignity, value, and respect, it creates a world, a culture, and can create and has, I think, created a culture and a world around them where the world recognizes we have to somehow circumvent what's gone wrong here, and it ends up leading to secular options that oftentimes lead to contradictions. But the point that I would make is this, that within these secularized options, they don't always create a sense of goodness and truth and beauty for all parties involved. And in this particular case, an unborn child. So I think it's also important to just note by way of a myth. I was thinking about this as well. Again, I'm just kind of reading through some of the bullet points I have written down here. If this seems scattered, again, I apologize. I had a really short amount of time to prepare this. So hopefully my rambling makes some degree of sense. So a myth. Oftentimes Christians get a really, really bad rap of saying they don't care about Actually, the whole life, they only focus, in fact, I read some articles saying that all Christians really care about, they're pro-fetus. They're not pro-life, they're pro-fetus. Again, I think that's a critique that Christians need to look at and say, is that true? If that is true, if that's all that I care about is making sure protecting, that's, 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 a, that's a good thing, I think, uh, if that's not clear yet. Um, but it has to even go beyond that. Because what happens when that child is born into a world that now needs to somehow gain access to formula or food or clothing or a, a place to live. Now what? And again, I think there's some argumentation and pushback saying that, that really Christians don't care about that. I, 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 I truly believe that is a myth. I know so many people throughout my tenure of being a pastor here that have been deeply involved in all forms of crisis pregnancies, helping people through counseling, giving money, uh, contributions, collaborations, showing up, bringing meal trains to people that are in crisis moments. We as a church have been aside, uh, a part of that, helping people throughout the years. Um, Christians, I don't know if you know this or not, I, I've been able to find the actual like data or statistics on this, but as far as like leading the movement in America on adoptions, Christians have, for a very long time, been deeply involved of helping women who are in a crisis pregnancy, trying to make sense and try to figure out what to do with a child now that it's born, what now what? Many Christians, I know many of you, many people in our church have opted towards being a part, being a contributor of helping to bring a child into this world and to provide a loving home and a safe space for them to grow up and to mature and become a fully functional human being. Like, again, I think it's important to just note that it is a myth to just assume that Christians don't care. Now, again, can we do more? Of course, we can always do more. But I think it's a myth to just simply say or reduce it to saying there is no care or compassion. If there is, if it is a valid critique for us to look at and say, man, we don't want to be part of that because that's not who we are. That's not the DNA that we've been given. The DNA that we've been given is uh, uh, love, mercy, to walk justly, to walk humbly before God. That's what we've been given. Uh, lastly, again, I already mentioned this, but it's worth repeating. Guilt and shame that have been leveled upon women or men that have coerced a woman to getting an abortion. There's no place for that. I know many of you have been in that place. And you still carry that shame. This is a house of healing. We just, we just sing it. It's a house of miracles. It's a house where we come. And we discover the greatness and the goodness and the kindness of Jesus that reorients our lives around him. And to be a community that embodies that is essential. To, to not embody that is a betrayal of the very DNA that 
Jesus has given us to, to live out. So again, number one, all humans bear the image of God. Number two, all pregnant women bear the image of God and are valuable. Number three, and I'm almost done here, all unborn children bear the image of God and are valuable. Now, I want to spend a little bit time just digesting and thinking about this. But from the very, very beginning of the church, Christians, uh, as well as even Jews, uh, prior to Jesus coming and formulating his uh, community around himself, uh, there has been baked into the Judeo-Christian soil this deep value towards all life, all life, including unborn life. And, and I want to walk through a handful of passages that just kind of, again, this is, so it's not, so you know this is not Pastor Brian's opinion. This is not me just kind of throwing out talking points. This is me just trying to anchor our theological thinking, our understanding, the way that we live, our conduct, our code of conduct, into something that's deep, historic, and part of the roots in the history that we've been, that we've been given. Hopefully that makes sense. So with that being said, from the very beginning of the church, um, there has been baked into the actual culture a deep desire to help both women that are in crisis moments as well as children that are deeply vulnerable. Both women and children are vulnerable. And how do we as Christians from the very early days embody the compassion, the justice, the loving kindness of Jesus? How do we do that? Which, by the way, Micah passage i just read is fully embodied in jesus that's that's what a christian is a christian actually believes that this idea of justice and kindness and walking humbly with god actually takes on flesh and bone in the person of jesus he comes and he shows us exactly what does a life that's devoted to god what is it life that is living humbly for god look like what is a life that embodies justice what is a life that embodies loving kindness look like we we have an answer to that it's jesus he fully, perfectly embodies that, and he's shown that to you. And now he's inviting us to live in a way that shows that to others, especially those in this context that are the most vulnerable among us. So I want to read a passage out of what's called the Didache. If you're unfamiliar with that, the Didache was, uh, was an early Christian document that was written around the hundreds, late hundreds, uh, second century, and it was deeply integral to the actual formation of the church. In fact, it was part of what was called the catechismal uh, service of the church. That, In other words, if you became a Christian, you're like, hey, I want to figure out how to walk with Jesus, they would say, uh, follow through with a spiritual mentor, the Didache. It will give you the guidelines. It will give you, point you in the direction of what a Christian actually looks like. So from the very early days, here's a little reading from this. It says this, you will not murder the offspring by means of abortion. It goes on to say, it further condemns those not showing mercy to the poor. So again, showing mercy to the poor was a part of what it looked like to embody the life of Jesus. And it goes on to say, alongside those, it would say this, uh, quote, uh, those murders of children, those corruptors of God's workmanship. And what we see right here is that the Didache actually links abortion with murder. And it could not be viewed as murder unless what's inside a mother is not viewed as a child or as a human being. And again, if you're familiar with the arguments, there's a distinction in our modern world to try to, uh, to, to parse um, humanity from personhood. And I'm going to, for the sake of time, just kind of bring them together. Being a person, a personhood, is the same as being a human being, which means it's the same as saying you have dignity, value, and worth because you bear the image of God. And so in the early church, they recognized the importance of speaking to this. Now, again, if you're familiar with Roman culture, you know that Roman culture uh, had a high level of emphasis upon rearing young men, young boys. It's kind of similar to how ch uh, Chinese culture had been for many uh, years where uh, uh, women, uh, females, if they were born, they were oftentimes forsaken or abandoned. Uh, and there was a massive uh, need to adopt uh, female women from 
um, China uh, because men, they had the one-child policy, but very similar to the Roman uh, culture where they would have a child, and they would just disperse them upon a uh, trash heap. Um, and then Christians were the ones that were oftentimes going out to those trash heaps, finding these children, bringing them in, raising them up, and trying to figure out a way to provide a means of care for them. Um, we have all sorts of ancient non-biblical or extra-biblical writers that address this. So from, for example, the Epistle of Barnabas, Tertullian, who was an early church leader, a guy by the name of Basil the Great, St. Jerome, Augustine, and even up to the present-day Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you're familiar with these. Are, these are all names of people that recognize the importance of standing up for a life that has not yet quite been born. So I want to jump to Scripture and just kind of finish up with some final thoughts. I'm going to read uh, three final Scriptures to make my points of consideration here, and then I want to end with some instruction from uh, the Apostle John, and then I'm done. So, for example, in the ancient historic biblical account, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, I'm going to read this to you, because again, what I'm trying to just point out is that the way the Christian narrative portrays an unborn child is not just simply a collection of cells, it is not just simply reduced to a fetus, is not just simply um, a parasite living off of another human being. That can be disposed of at will. It's far more than that. Again, you, you might not agree with how I'm presenting this or how I'm stating this. I'm just trying to point out as best as I can with the time frame that I have that from the ancient historical biblical text and from the ancient historical biblical church, there has always been this view that what is, whatever it is inside of mother, whatever it is, it's been viewed as a human being. When does that happen? I don't, I don't know, man. I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I haven't figured that out. But the point that I would make is that this is the, the consensus throughout church history. And again, I want to be really clear on this. You could disagree with that. But you, you have to recognize that the disagreement is not necessarily with me. It's with the fact that you have chosen to believe a more modern myth or a more modern narrative at the expense of a more historical rooted one that traces all the way up into Scripture. So, so that's all I'm simply throwing out. It's something to be wrestled through and thought through carefully. Again, like I said, carefully. Not to be ignored, not to be swiped away, but to just be thoughtfully uh, how we process this. So, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 says this, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And this is Jeremiah the prophet. He's thinking about, as an adult, looking back to even before he was even born, he's saying, God, you knew me. Even before I was born, when I was still in my mother's womb, you knew me. So as an adult prophet, he's considering the relationship that God had with him even in his mother's womb. Now, again, some would say, well, he's just waxing poetic. Possible. But it's also possible that something more is happening here. It's very possible that what he's articulating is that whatever is happening in the womb of a mother is something so profoundly beautiful and phenomenal that that somehow, on some level, God is interacting with this unborn child. Psalm 139, the Psalm of David, He's thinking about, uh, no doubt, his life and how God had moved upon him. And he says this, For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I was fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, uh, intricately woven in the depths, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And the question that just kind of came to my mind is, like, when did David become David? Was it the moment he came into this life from his mother? 
Or was there something else happening that David's reflecting upon? God, when I was still in my mom, even before I was fully formed, you knew me. And this becomes a source of worship and praise and honor and reflection upon the greatness and the goodness of God. That, 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 that David was David at some point long before blood and water came and followed him into this world. Lastly, Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, says this of Jesus. Then the angel comes to Mary, familiar with the story. Uh, he says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son. He shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house for, of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. Another question is, when did Jesus become human Jesus? When he was born? I, I think, again, I, this is my theological interpretation of this. I think what we can deduct from this passage Jesus somehow miraculously became God incarnate the moment God did some miracle inside of Mary's womb. So the, the question that we have to morally think through is that if this is indeed a child, and if it is indeed deeply vulnerable, and if a woman who is in a crisis pregnancy is also a human being that bears God's image and is deeply vulnerable, how do we thread this gap to walk in a way that shows forth justice and kindness there's no easy answers it will require compassion it will require getting our hands dirty it will require maybe in some case our spending our own money creating our own meals showing up and delivering diapers maybe even adopting a child into our life it will require radical movement of our lives but guys this is the very core of the gospel I can put it into this context. What did it cost God to rescue you? This is the core of it. It cost him everything. And it began in a womb. And it ended on the cross and the resurrection from a tomb. And it began something brand new. I want to finish with one final reading a passage, and I'm, I'm actually done, I promise. In fact, I'm going to have Dan come on up, and he's going to read us in a closing song. But as he's getting ready, I want to just read this over you guys, and I want you to listen to it. This is John the Apostle's instruction. I think it's really appropriate. This is kind of the, the first verse that I, I, when I woke up yesterday morning, I don't know why, but this, this passage was literally just in my head. Might have been part of my Bible reading program. I don't know. But all I knew is I was like, I, I got to read this because it's so, so good. And I got to figure out and formulate a, an entire sermon and get rid of my sermon that I was going to preach and just create something brand new out of, out of this. And so uh, this, you might be like, this is not a really great Bible study on that. Like, I, sorry, I apologize for that. But again, I'm not going to go back and tell you what I didn't have. But the point that I'll make is just listen to what John writes. In fact, why don't we all stand? I want to just read this over to you guys. If you'd like, you can just kind of close your eyes and just meditatively think about it, consider it. But this is John writing a message to early first century Christians, trying to make sense of following Jesus in a world that's just as hostile as our own world today and just accustomed to doing and discarding life, just like as in ours. John says this, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. 
Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Which is just another way of saying we love, we love all. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But this we know love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for others. But if anyone has this world's goods, this is really important. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees a brother or a lady in a crisis pregnancy in need, and yet closes their heart against them, how does God's love abide in them? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Or in mishpat and chesed. Let us love in the way that God says, this is what brings a smile to my face. When humans reflect the type of love and the quality of love that I've shown to them, then that circle of goodness gets perpetuated and people don't get forgotten. People don't feel betrayed. People don't then feel the need to somehow recreate a system or a collection of systems that inevitably end up throwing somebody else or something else off into a doghouse. But this is the way to true wholeness, to true goodness. Guys, I, I'm done. But at the end of the day, it's like, this is this is what I want our community to aspire for and toward, to become like Jesus in, in all of this. Again, if not, then, man, what are we doing? We're just, we're just like going about the emotions of like church. At the end of the day, that's just, that's just, it's, it's time stamped, it's limited, it fails. And when it fails, it just creates even more cynicism in the world. So even those Christians can't love each other. Even them are just filled with cynicism and hatred and anger and spite because I read their comments on Facebook and social media and they're just as angry as everybody else. And yet we're invited to look at life in a different way and to live by a different spirit. That's my hope. And I want to pray over us right now, and I want to pray for just that we would be a non-anxious presence in slow, on the Central Coast, in our home, and wherever else we show up, even if that's social media. So Jesus, right now, we entrust ourselves to you. We ask you, would you reshape us, remake us, and our lives around this narrative, this truth, God, that you would make us aware and give us discernment about those ways in which our hearts have been feeding off of these liturgies of anger, and cynicism, and hatred, and bitterness, and tribalism that have actually just been making us a type of person that doesn't look like you, which is filled with anxiety, frustration. So God, remake us into people that look like you. And we ask for your help.